Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, we encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Scharf. But now we want to turn our attention to our lesson this morning, which is going to come from the book of 2 Corinthians. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have, you, have any of you noticed, perhaps, that uh, there's some evidence that evil men and seducers seem to be growing worse and worse in our world? This seems to be a day of a growing apostasy and unfaithfulness and even wickedness and corruption. How do we minister in such a world and do so with the utmost effectiveness for the Lord God? How do we serve the Lord even as we approach the end of the age in, in what seems to be a deepening, thickening darkness? We're going to look for answers this morning from the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Second Corinthians. We're going to think about the standards that the Apostle Paul demanded as he worked with other servants in his ministry? What were the principles that he employed in being so incredibly productive in his very difficult life in the first century as he went about to serve the churches, in particular the one at Corinth, which when I simply say the name, you probably are aware of its reputation from the Scriptures, even as the city of Corinth had a very negative reputation in its own time. How did Paul stand in the face of tremendous difficulty and opposition? Being slandered and falsely accused, contending with heresy, with apostasy. How did Paul handle suffering? We're going to think about all those questions this morning and attempt to do so in a way that is is helpful and edifying and productive. Let's just step back for a minute and think about the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, I I know you have a wonderful teaching pastor here, so I don't presume to in any way take his place or, or overrun his ministry by saying this. But I hope that our time together today will not just be a a happy circumstance of a few minutes that we shared together, but I'd like to leave you with something that you can go from here and consider what I say and and trust the Lord to give you understanding in these things. Uh, Search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Because what we're going to be doing this morning, more than having a final conclusive answer to all these questions I've raised, is... uh, giving you, in essence, some homework to do, whereby you can go and look these passages further and consider them and study them. Hopefully you have, at least, if nothing else, an excellent study Bible. You can read the text and read the notes. Think about these things in connection with your own life and build on this time 
that we've shared together today. That's, that's my hope and my prayer for what can come out of this opportunity that we share together. The Apostle Paul planted the church at Corinth between probably 50 and 52 A.D. on his second missionary journey, as it's described in Acts chapter 18. Did you know that he stayed in Corinth for 18 months, second only to the time he spent at Ephesus? Paul had made a very significant investment in the lives of the people at Corinth, and they cost him dearly through, by way of the, the, the anguish that he suffered as a result of some of the things that continued to happen in that church that he had founded as he dealt with these people and went with them through many, many difficulties. As I'm sure you're aware, if you're a, a Bible student and you've read these books of First and Second Corinthians, uh, there's, there's actually more history behind the book of 2 Corinthians, really, than any other similar book of the Bible. Uh, we can p- piece together so many things that happened throughout the time between uh, the starting of the church and uh, the writing of the book of 2 Corinthians, maybe five years later. And actually, it entails a total of, believe it or not, five letters. And you say, we only have First and 2 Corinthians. We don't have 5 Corinthians. Well, uh, Paul wrote, uh, first of all, before he ever wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote a letter that's called the Lost Letter. It's referred to in 1 Corinthians 5.9. And then it appears the Corinthians wrote him back. And then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And then Paul wrote another letter that's referred to, we often call it the Severe Letter. And that's based on 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, that out of much affliction and anguish of heart, he had written to them with many tears. And this is called his severe letter. And then finally he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. So a total of five letters and a total of three visits, because Paul not only planted the church, but uh, he went from Ephesus, where he wrote 1 Corinthians, to back to Corinth, made another visit, and this is often called the painful visit. And that's, again, based on 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And then he is intending to come back to Corinth after writing 2 Corinthians. So a third visit. So five letters, three visits. By the way, just as an aside, let me encourage you with this. For all the trouble and all the anguish that the church in Corinth caused Paul. And they certainly did. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there were some wonderful saints at Corinth. It appears that the majority had repented and received Paul's message as he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. They had repented of various issues and problems and things that he's even continuing to confront throughout the book, as we'll see. But, you know, for all the trouble they had and all the, the ongoing angst that came out of Corinth and out of the church there, one thing they did, perhaps their greatest contribution to all of Christian history, is they gave the Apostle Paul, when he came back in his third visit after the writing the book of Second Corinthians, they gave him a quiet place to work. He apparently had a desk at which he could write. 
And I can see him there as he looked out over the city of Corinth. Paul wrote the book of Romans, his magnum opus. So for whatever you want to say about the people at Corinth, in the end God used the church there in the production of the book of Romans. Paul is writing to us in 2 Corinthians, giving us principles for living and serving the Lord in this church age by grace, grace principles, big ideas of how to serve the Lord in this age of the church, especially in times of difficulty. Paul writes to us at the end of chapter 4, by the way, let me just draw your attention quickly to one thing that will be coming back to chapter 1 where we'll spend much of our time this morning, but we'll, we'll go off to a, a few related passages and one that even before we come to chapter 1, let me share from chapter 4 briefly. The theme is in verses 1 and 16, we do not lose heart. And perhaps there's someone here today that needs that message above all else. We do not lose heart. And the original writing of Paul here and the, the construction of those words is the idea is that to lose heart, implicit in the, in the meaning, is that to lose heart is a moral failure. It's not simply to quit. It's not simply to give up. It's not simply to fail to endure. It's not simply to be overcome by weakness. But it's to morally fail by losing heart, losing our trust, losing our hope in the midst of difficulty. Paul says we don't lose heart. He gives us that assurance in verse 1 and again in verse 16. Even though our outward man is perishing, verse 16, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, he talks about. Anybody here this morning have any light afflictions? You say, well, what's light compared to what? Ah, that's the right question to ask. You see, because our afflictions, and I don't discount, there may be some people here with very heavy afflictions this morning from a human perspective. We look out at the world today. We look at our beloved nation much less other areas of the world, and we looked at, at the situation and the circumstances, and we would be very, very discouraged. But Paul's calling us to look beyond what is seen to what is not seen. Well, how in the world are we going to see things that aren't seen? Ah, we have to have a heavenly perspective. We have to see with the eyes of faith through the lens of God's holy word. And we look out from that perspective and we realize all of these afflictions are light compared to the weight of the glory that is to be revealed within us. Now, I'm setting out a lot of ideas here and I will continue to do that, but I hope they'll all tie together in your mind by the time that we're done. We're talking about living by grace and trusting God even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of suffering, living lives of integrity, which leads to confidence. And I've 
put out this idea of grace principles. I like that term. And what I would encourage you even to do is to go through the book of 2 Corinthians, maybe with a special color highlighter if you highlight in your Bible, and look for these powerful words that Paul uses from which we could draw principles of how to live by grace. Let me give you an idea. I think the key to the book is really found in chapter 1, in a section that we're going to come to, uh, like verse uh, 9, which talks about trusting in God. And it leads into verse 12, which talks about our boasting is this the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity. By the way, I'm reading here this morning from the New King James Version. And I'll also be referring in a moment to the English Standard Version. But you may have the word holiness because of a textual difference in verse 12. We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity or in holiness. Either would be true. But with godly sincerity. Now notice the contrast Paul sets forth here. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. We don't live by fleshly wisdom but by the grace of God. And Paul is talking about living and serving by grace and principles of doing that. And then the the outflow that comes from that when we serve the Lord by His grace. We persevere through trials because God provides comfort even in the midst of trials. And let me tell you, the Apostle Paul knew what trials were. In fact, he lists them several times in the book of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 6, for instance, verse 5, he talks about, well, back up to verse 4, he talks about tribulations and needs and distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. And he goes on, and then he talks about being always sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing in verse 10. But what about chapter 11? I mean, that's where he really talks about suffering. Beginning in verse 23, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That would be from the Romans. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And that's what was really troubling Paul as he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. Because you see, in his absence, the Corinthians were being disturbed. The whole congregation, in fact, was at risk, potentially, spiritually, because of some false teachers who had come into Corinth. We believe that these men came potentially from Jerusalem, 
and were a form, an iteration of the Judaizers that, uh, that came about in the first century. These were Jewish false teachers who came in to corrupt churches like at Galatia. This, this seems to be a unique group that Paul references here throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. We won't have time this morning to delve totally into that issue. That's not our focus. But let me just draw your attention to chapter 11, verse 5. He says, I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. That sounds like such a lofty statement when we read that, but the English Standard Version, I think, captures it. When Paul calls these guys the super-apostles, I think he's talking about them negatively here and referencing those false teachers. He says, look, the super apostles don't have anything on me. The super apostles. I think that captures the essence of who these men presented themselves to be. Also chapter 12, verse 11, he talks about, again in the ESV, the super apostles. Sounds like something you'd encounter in some uh, corners of Christian television today, doesn't it? The super apostles. They were superheroes. They presented themselves. And Paul is presenting his credentials, as we've seen through his sufferings, if you look at those two contexts more closely that we just read in chapter 6 and chapter 11, to say, look, to the church at Corinth, uh, you're enamored of these super apostles who are actually false teachers. And, And they had actually convinced enough of the people in the congregation at Corinth that the people at Corinth were saying to Paul, look, we need, we need to rethink this whole issue of your planting the church here in Corinth, and we need to see credentials from you of the kind that they have presented to us from apparent authorities in Jerusalem who are backing them. And so Paul writes chapter 3 about this issue. He says, verse 1, do we begin... Again, to commend ourselves, do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He says, look, church at Corinth, you're our epistle. You're written in our hearts. And you're known and read by all men. You're an epistle of Christ, written not with ink but by the Spirit of the living God. We could give you credentials that you might like, but really... You're our credential. Christ has written these things, not with paper and ink, but on your heart. And Paul is intimating here to them, if I'm a false apostle, if I'm a false teacher, what does that leave you? Because I've taught you the gospel and planted the church in Corinth. Paul is is heartbroken over these issues. He's writing with tears. And yet, out of the midst of it, we find that suffering, great affliction, one of the things that it leads to is thanksgiving. The book of 2 Corinthians is a tremendous book about thanksgiving. And uh, it's getting close to that time of year. Maybe you want to take the the weeks between now and November to meditate on 2 Corinthians and think of all the references that Paul makes to being thankful, such as he starts us off with in chapter 1, verse 11. Thanksgiving flows from suffering, 
but also affliction and suffering leads to a greater capacity to serve the Lord in this life and to receive reward at the judgment seat of Christ when we stand before him. 2 Corinthians 4, where we were reading a moment ago, verse 16, we read about not losing heart. The inward man is being renewed. Verse 17, for our light affliction, notice this, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, in light of eternity, it's light and it's momentary. You know that you can endure almost anything for just a moment? But when you realize the significance of what God is working in your life through your afflictions, you might wish that it could last more than just a moment. Because notice this, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. It's working for us. Reminds us of one of the wonderful verses of our Christian life. God is working all things together for good to those who love him. Ephesians 1 talks about the fact that God is working all things after the counsel of his own will. You look out at the world and you're very discouraged. Don't be upset. He's got it all. Everything is absolutely under control. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. I have a friend who likes to say things are not falling apart. They're simply falling into place. And notice in our own personal lives, our afflictions are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We have so much in 2 Corinthians, I'll try not to turn outside the book uh, this morning, except to, to share this reference. 1 Peter 4.13. I wonder if you've noticed when Peter is talking about sufferings and trials, he says the same thing about the fiery trial which is to try you. 1 Peter 4.12 and 13. He says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, suffering in this life increases our capacity to serve the Lord here, but it also increases our capacity to receive reward at the judgment seat of Christ. The suffering that we endure leads to greater reward when we stand before Christ. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then Paul breaks into a section in which he talks about things that are eternal, and he talks about specifically, and goes into some detail about our resurrection bodies. We know the resurrection chapter is 1 Corinthians 15, but here Paul breaks into what we might call the resurrection chapter in miniature, 2 Corinthians 5. And we're actually going to pick up there in Sunday school in the next hour, so I invite you to stay with us. But let's go back now to chapter 1 and zero in on the things Paul is describing here and particularly what we can learn about suffering and what it can do for us, what Paul endured, so we have a model to see how we are to relate to and handle suffering in our lives. 
And we come to chapter 1, verse 2, and we see that Timothy is uh, involved still in Paul's project here of writing to the Corinthians. He was an important witness to all these things and a great help to the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing to the church there at Corinth, and beginning in verse 3, I'd like to read verses 3 through 8 from the ESV. And the reason is because the ESV has done something that I think is very helpful in these particular verses, and that is they've chosen to translate the same Greek words with the same English words, so it's consistent throughout the passage, and it becomes very, very clear and evident what Paul is talking about. And I'd like to read 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 8 from the ESV, and I'll emphasize those words that Paul emphasizes, which again are are translated in in such a way as you'll see uh, that they're consistent throughout the passage. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure. You remain under the trial. You remain in the situation. You're like the the Olympic weightlifter remaining under the weight. And you're like that athlete. His muscles are developing and strengthening as he remains under. As you patiently endure the same sufferings, that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Do you see the patterns there of the words Paul is using? And he closes in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever noticed, really, the, the impact there of verse 8? We'll come back to that in just a second, but before we do, let me read something to you from uh, church history, from the life and ministry of the great reformer, Dr. Martin Luther. He gave us three rules for how to become a theologian. Have you ever heard of this before? Three rules to become a theologian. He said, I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. Luther said, I have practiced this method myself. The method of which I am speaking is the one which the holy King David teaches in Psalm 119. Here you will find three rules. They are frequently proposed throughout the psalm and run thus. And he talks about three rules for becoming a theologian. The first is is to practice prayer. Luther said, you should completely despair of your own sense and reason, 
for by these you will not attain the goal. Rather, kneel down in your private little room and with sincere humility and earnestness pray God through his dear Son graciously to grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding. And he goes on. Prayer. The second rule to become a theologian, Luther said, is meditation. Quote, secondly, you should meditate. This means that not only in your heart, but also externally, you should constantly handle and compare, read and reread the word as preached, and the very words as written in Scripture, diligently noting and meditating on what the Holy Spirit means. Meditation. Can you guess what the third element of becoming a theologian is, according to Martin Luther? It is trials or suffering. In fact, Luther used the German word anfechtungen, which talks about a deep sense of fear, guilt, despair, and hopelessness. It's the word that he used of the condition that he felt in the monastery, if you know the story of the life of Martin Luther, when he was attempting through good works, through self-deprivation, to earn his salvation as a monk in the Roman Catholic system of the Middle Ages before his conversion to the gospel. Unfechtungen, hopelessness, despair. Luther says trials. Thirdly, there is the testing of Anfechtungen. He says, this is the touchstone. It teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. That, this is why you observe that in the psalm indicated, David so often complains of all sorts of enemies for as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you, will make a real theologian of you. And he quotes Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. So let me ask you the question again. Anyone here this morning with any light afflictions, any sufferings, any trials, well, the Apostle Paul, as we've seen, knew what it meant to suffer. And he knew that God had a purpose in those sufferings, as we've seen, that he could bring comfort to others out of the experience practically in his life of learning to trust God through suffering. Now I want to draw you back this morning to chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. When Paul says that, by the way, uh, we could make a joke and say he's not starting a new de denomination called the Ignorant Brethren, so don't get any ideas. But actually, when he makes that statement, he is really giving a superlative comment here. I want you to understand something. I want you to relate. Dear people, I'm telling you something very important. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Now, this is apparently something that was known to the Corinthians, but it's been lost to history. The best guess seems to be based on something Paul had said at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. He was in Ephesus. 
He was going to stay in Ephesus in verse 8. And he says in verse 9, A great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And it seems perhaps that as Paul had entered through that amazing door of opportunity, there were also waiting for him right on the other side some incredible adversaries in some kind of trial out of which he says we were burdened beyond measure above strength in other words we had no external resources to handle this situation we even had no internal resources left for it so that we despaired even of life we despaired even of life I I take Paul at his word there I hope that uh, if you can relate to what Paul is speaking of, well, you're with us here this morning. Let me say to those listening and, and to those who may even listen to this message in a distant time and place by way of recording, that I trust that you will never succumb to the temptation to despair of your life to the point of taking your own life. We know that God forbids that. And certainly that is not his will for a believer in Jesus Christ or for an unbeliever. But Paul says we were at the point where we despaired even of life. Someone said wisely, I think, that despair is a greater sin than any of the sins that led up to it. And Paul was there not because he had gone into deep sin, but because of the external forces that were mounted against him. He says in verse 9, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. And commentators uh, oppose the question, was this a legal sentence, an actual death sentence that had been uh, handed down? As we know, Paul would eventually be martyred for the faith. In the book of 2 Timothy, after he writes that, his final words... We had the sentence of death in ourselves, perhaps an overwhelming sense of fear and guilt and despair because of the situation that just surmounted uh, Paul and his ministry. But notice what he learned of it. Obviously, somehow God had delivered him out of this unnamed situation. And he says, we learn from it and we took from it that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now we have confessed this morning, not directly, uh, I, perhaps in, in these exact words, but uh, certainly through our communion service, we have confessed one to another that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Have we not this morning? That Jesus Christ, our Savior, died and was buried and rose again. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, we may have sung that even close in those words. If we believe that God raises the dead, do we not trust him then for this physical life in which we now live? We're going to see in the next hour and look again at chapter 5 and related passages that talk about that resurrection and the hope that we have and what awaits us a far more a weighty a glory that so surpasses our, our current uh, 
afflictions that are so light in, in comparison, if we can trust God to deliver us ultimately and to raise us from the dead, can we not trust in Him rather than ourselves to bring us through this temporal life? Notice that Paul, I believe purposely, in verse 10 and 11, he compares how this trial is sort of a metaphor for the three phases of salvation that we often talk about. God has saved us. We're justified. He is saving us. He's sanctifying us. He will save us. He will glorify us one day in the future. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. One day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Paul speaks in these same terms in verse 10. He says, Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. He who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He has delivered us, he is delivering us, and he will yet deliver us. And notice verse 11, you also. Paul now draws the Corinthians into all of this. And the idea being that in Christ, we are all members of the body of Christ as believers. Paul certainly even had more than that, a direct connection to the physical local church in Corinth. But even if he hadn't, being united in Christ, in the true body and universal church of Christ, we can apply verse 11. We certainly can apply it within a local body of believers. You also helping together. You can help together. You can be part of one another's trials and victories. How? Helping together in prayer. Helping together in prayer for us, Paul says. Here's one of our words that thanks... Prayer and thanks, grace principles for living in the serving in the church age and especially in these times of difficulty. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. We're connected to one another. We need one another, especially as one is suffering, so another provides comfort to the one who is suffering. And we're working together in prayer as God is working through us toward his ultimate goals for our lives, even through suffering. Paul says in verse 12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience. Now this is important, again, going back to the grand theme of Paul defending his ministry. He did it not simply to vindicate himself or his reputation, but because it was a matter of whether the Corinthians would follow him and the truth or the false teachers, the super apostles, and their false teaching. Paul had a great burden for the church at Corinth and did not want to see them go that direction. So he speaks to them and appeals to them on the basis of the conscience, which tells us Not what is right, unless it's biblically informed, but it tells us to do right. And Paul is informing them, and he's telling them to obey the conscience 
to do what is right in light of God's eternal word that he has taught them as he has explained it to them and trained them. Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you, He says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul goes on throughout 1 Corinthians 1 to uh, continue with these themes. It's interesting how he actually speaks in this chapter of the work not only of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father, but God the Holy Spirit, as he comes to the end of the chapter, talking about the fact that the he who, verse 21, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, God the Father, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And if we look at chapter 5, which we'll come to in the next hour, we see really the presence of the Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee of our future resurrection. Even when the believer dies, the Holy Spirit maintains a connection to the body of the believer, even as it's in the grave, I believe, in anticipation of that day when it will be raised again. And this is a related theme that Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. And we have such tremendous hope and comfort. In fact, a word Paul uses uh, as he comes in chapter uh, 5 is, we can be confident. We can have confidence even in times of suffering and difficulty and trouble. Because as the book closes in the final verse of chapter 13, we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit with us. The three members of the Godhead, as he's referenced here in chapter 1. Well, our time is drawing to a close. And we want to pause here and again pick up in the next hour. I hope that these themes have... uh, made sense that they weave together in your mind, that you see some, some points develop that intersect with one another and give us reason to have hope and confidence to not lose heart, not to faint, even in the day of trouble and adversity. But I would be remiss if, before I close this morning if I did not say to everyone listening and to anyone who may need to hear this message that the only way that we can be plugged into these things that we're talking about this morning. Before we can ever try to live and serve the Lord by grace, we have to first receive his grace. And that initial understanding of grace comes to us when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, when we trust in Christ alone as the only way, the only hope of salvation. Now we've given testimony to that this morning, those of us who are here physically present, we've received the Lord's Supper, the communion service together, 
to demonstrate or to, to testify of our faith in Jesus Christ. But if you have never yet received Christ by faith alone, you can do so even right now as you listen. You don't need to wait for the end of the service. You don't need to do anything else. There's nothing else you can do but to trust by faith alone in Christ alone, the eternal Son of God. He's the one that ultimately is the focus of everything we're talking about today. And he has left the glory of heaven. Paul talks about this so eloquently in chapters 8 and 9 in his section on giving that Christ gave up all of the incredible riches he enjoyed in all eternity in heaven, came to this earth, became also man, as we've sung about, as we've heard about this morning, died on the cross in our place for our sins so we could have the forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven with him if we trust in him alone that he is the Savior who can save us, who died for our sins. So we could have that forgiveness, so we could have that hope that we're going to develop further in the next hour. If we'll trust in him by faith alone, we are saved by his grace alone. And then once we receive the grace of God, we are to live and to serve him by grace. I pray that that is your testimony and that this look into 2 Corinthians this morning will increase your hope even in such a time as this. So, Father, I pray that you will use these words this morning to help us, to encourage us in our Christian lives to live and to serve you by your grace. And I pray that you will use these words to bring glory to yourself and to increase faith in each of our hearts. For we know that faith comes only by hearing the word of God. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.